Welcome to the ministry of Faith Community Church of Indianapolis. We pray this message by Pastor John Roberts is a blessing to you. To learn more about Faith Community Church, please visit us at FCCIndianapolis.com. Well, I want to go back just real briefly. Last week we, we, we talked about, we used the temple and the tabernacle to show the, the, the three parts of man, the outer court where the, the brazen altar and the brazen labor were. It's where the blood was applied, where you cleaned up, but it's where sin was dealt with. That represents our body. Your body has the nature of sin, and it cannot be in the presence of God. If you think about the, the, um, the Mount of Transfiguration, had Jesus had the nature of sin in his flesh, when that glory that came out of him made him shine, it would have burnt his body to a cinder. The only way that he could handle the glory of God was he had no sin either that he had committed or that he had inherited. That's why he had to have been born of a virgin. He had no inherited sin. Even when we were infants and had never sinned on our own accord, we still had the inheritance of sin from Adam. And it was passed down through our fathers. It's one of the reasons, my opinion, that there's such an attack on fatherhood today. Because fatherhood is important. You, you, you inherit the, 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 the sin nature, but you also can inherit from your heavenly father. That's off topic, but that's free. Then we looked at, at, at the end, at the, the, the Holy of Holies. That's where the ark was, with, and, and inside the ark was the law. There's tablets of stone. Well, we don't have the tablets of stone on our hearts, but Jesus has given us a heart of flesh and written the word on that heart of flesh. We also had the, the Aaron's rod that was dead, but God supernaturally made it alive. Not only made it alive, but overnight it budded. It had brought out leaves, a stem, and fruit, which tells me that my spirit that was dead, God will recreate, and it's brand new, and it's going to grow, and it's going to bear fruit. It's just a natural byproduct of being alive. Amen? And then you had the, the, the golden pot of manna, which is the bread of life, which is Jesus. That's all on the inside of you right now. That you got all of that at the new birth. It's all a gift. You don't have to work for it. You, in fact, you can't work for it. You can work all day. You don't deserve it. You know, somebody occasionally, this is one of the dangers of being a pastor. People will come up and pat you on the back and say, you know, especially if they know you got blessed with something, they say, oh, you deserve that. And part of you wants to pull your shoulders back and say, you're right, I do. <clears throat> Work hard, do some preaching, uh, yeah. But the reality is, I deserve some stuff. I deserve to live a short life, sick, die, and go to hell for all eternity. That's what I deserve, and that's all I deserve. Everything else that Jesus has given me is a gift, a pure gift. But where do I sit? Because those are polar opposites, my body and my spirit. My life is ruled by that center place, the holy place, which represents my mind, my will, my emotions. And it all pertains to those three pieces of furniture you find there. The table of showbread, 
which is the bread of life, which is Jesus, which I have to consume. If I don't eat it, I don't get any benefit from it. You can set the greatest table in the world, beautiful food, tastes good, smells good, and if I do not consume it, I, will, I can starve to death. Sitting at a full... In fact, in Psalm 23, he, he prepares a table before you in the presence of your enemies. That's the table of showbread. That bread, when you consume it, will bring light, which is the second piece of furniture, which is the menorah, the oil of God, which is the Holy Spirit. When you feed on the Word and you allow the Holy Spirit to use you, you will get illumination. Things will just start to make a little more sense. But all of that has to come together at the altar of incense, which is the prayers of the saints. But this is where I want to focus in today. Those three, but in particular, think of the imagery. If you've ever seen, if you've ever gone to a Catholic service, and, and I'm not picking on Catholics, there's a lot of good Catholics out there. There's a lot of people in every church. You can't pick a church and say, oh, that's a good church. They're, they've all got good people and bad people. They all got saints and sinners alike. But, but part of the worship uh, service in a lot of Catholic services is they bring out the little censer and they have a hot coal in there and they pour incense on it. And the priest will go and, I mean, when that thing starts smoking, it smells good. That's what they had with the altar of incense. When they had hot coals on there, they would pour the incense and smoke would just bellow out. That smoke represents words, your breath, the breath of God, the breath of life from you breathing out God's life out into the world. It represents what you say, how you talk, what all prayers you offer up to God. All of that is represented there. Now, this is what I want to look at. Go, we're going to go to John 3. Sorry, Chuck, I'm, some of these last-minute editions, so, but Chuck's nimble. He'll pull up some scriptures. But if not, everybody's familiar. John 3, 16. Dear Lord, all you got to do is watch a football game. You'll see that one. Somebody's got a sign somewhere, John 3, 16. Well, let's start there. We're going to read through verse 20. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Notice God's love brought him to the point where he gave. We have to respond to that gift by believing. And if we respond, then we have everlasting life. It's not just that God loves us. God's love motivated him to do something. That love also, when we see what he did, it should motivate us to exercise faith, and then we have everlasting life. We have a part to play in this. Verse 17, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that th the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Verse 19, and this is the condemnation. For those that don't believe, this is their condemnation. Notice this. It's not that they live sinful lives. This is their condemnation, that the light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. 
It's the light that, that we're, that, that I'm, the light and how the light affects you. If you love the light, you will approach the light. You will want to be around the light. If you don't love the light, if you love the darkness, you're going to go gravitate to the darkness. Whatever the heart you have is where you're going to go to. That's just a law of, 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 of a spiritual law. You're going to be attracted to what you love. Now, Paul reflected this, this same thought. And I want to go over to, to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians 4, Paul is going to equate our faith and light, but he's going to do it in a strange way. And, and, and I've, I saw something, I'm, I'm praying that God will help me get this over today because it's, it gets a little involved, but I want you to see the pattern. In, in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 13, and keep in mind, the whole theme of chapter 4 is that we have received mercy, but life's hard. In fact, I think it's in um, verse 8. We're hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We're perplexed, but not despair. We're persecuted, but not forsaken. Paul just goes through list after list after list of things that are difficult in this world. But in verse 13, he gives our response to what God has done. Verse 13 says, Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believe, therefore I spoke. We also believe, and therefore we speak. Now that, I believe, and therefore I spoke, is a reference back to Psalm 116, and we're not going to go back there and look at it. But I encourage you, go read Psalm 116 in its entirety and see the context of what Paul's saying here. I believe, therefore, I was compelled. In the same way that John 3 says that Jesus, um, God gave Jesus because he loved the world. And we saw the gift and we responded by faith because we loved God. In the same way, when I believe, I am compelled to speak. Now, here's the question. Look, look at this, because I'll be honest with you. When I get off into this, uh, I, I hear this all the time. Oh, you're preaching that name and claim it. Gab it and grab it. Well, yes. But I will be the first to admit, there have been a lot of extremes in this, in this area. People get, but, but, but let me explain part of the extreme. If you come to my house, we, my, my wife orders things over the internet. And therefore, we, once you order one thing, that puts you on a catalog list. And that catalog list shares your name with another catalog list. And that catalog list shares your name with another. Before you know it, you're getting 7,000 catalogs a day in the mail. Well, at our, at our house, it depends on who gets to the mail first. Because if I get to them... I just shuffle them into the trash, and I get rebuked sometimes, but I do it anyway. But there is one exception to that. When we get toy catalogs, toy catalogs have a special place in our house. We have a little wicker basket, sits by the, by the uh, um, um, couch, and all the toy catalogs. And some of them are years old. But when our grandkids, especially the little ones, now the big ones, they still like toys, but their toys are getting expensive now because they're teenagers. But the little ones, man, when they hit our house, it's a quick hug and go to the toy catalog box. 
And they'll pull that thing out, and they're looking for a pencil, and they're circling and they're dreaming. They're circling and they're dreaming. Why? Because they're kids. They're kids. They know, they know Gigi and Gimpaw are pretty free with the cash when it comes to grandkids. So they're circling and they're hinting. Christmas is coming here. Birthday's coming here. The confession message where people are, are, are taking an extreme and I'm, I'm confessing for a new car. I'm confessing for this. I'm confessing for that. It's a childish reaction to a truth. Don't get angry and criticize Christian children for doing the same thing that natural children do. They just haven't grown to the point where they, don't, where they realize there are more important points to this truth. Paul says it right there. He said, going back to 2 Corinthians 4.13, Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, according to what is written, that's the key here. Yes, I believed and therefore I spoke, but what did I speak? I spoke what was written. I, my confession, Paul is saying, get back to the Word. Get back to how the Word describes you. Get back to what the Bible says about you. If you get far, very, I mean, even minuscule amount away from the Word, what you're declaring the Word says, because what the Word says you are is what God says you are, and I don't want to be in a position of arguing with God. Oh, Lord, I'm such a sinner. Why do you say that? Because I just sinned. Well, I don't think you're a sinner. Well, God, you're wrong. Well, when you say it like that, it's like, well, wait a minute. I didn't mean it that way. I mean that I'm manifesting this sin. Well, actually, yes. He knows that. You haven't conquered that one. But that does not mean that you are a sinner. He says you are a saint. You need to start listening to him and declaring what he says you are because it will help you to start manifesting what he says you are. Now, to point this out, I'm, we're in verse 13. I want you to back up to 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. Because Paul links... Verse 13, I, I, I believe, therefore I spoke with the creation event. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, he says, For it is, the, it is God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, has, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul says, You believing and speaking here in a little minute, is just like God bringing light, commanding light to shine out of darkness. Now, here's the interesting thing. Let's go back to Genesis, chapter 1. Let me preface this with, which, with a couple of statements. Genesis 1 gives you a, 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 well, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, give you a description of the creation event, how God created the universe. But don't think and don't try to apply modern scientific thinking to Genesis. The point of the Bible is not to give you a scientific explanation of how the universe was created. The point of the Bible and the point of Genesis is to reveal Jesus Christ. That's it. 
That's the point of the Bible. You may learn a few things about creation, but we just saw Paul in verse 6 of 2 Corinthians 4 said, I'm going to compare what happened in Genesis 1 with you, with God giving light to your heart. So there's more to Genesis than just, this is how I created. Does it matter how he created the universe to you getting to heaven? No. You can disagree all day and all night on how old the universe is, how God created the universe, what steps he took to get it into creation, how it played out. You can argue till the cows come home. It has nothing to do with your eternal destiny. It's not a heaven or hell issue. It makes an interesting debate topic sometimes, except for the fact that a lot of people just want to either, if you don't believe exactly the way they do, they want to consign you to hell, and it's not that kind of an issue. But this is what I want to look at. Let's go back and look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. Verse 1 and verse 1 describes, and this I'm going to tell you how I see this. If you want to disagree, that's okay. But listen to, try to catch the flavor of what I'm saying. Genesis 1.1 gives the account of, of the initial creation of the universe. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Period. God is the creator. In fact, if, if you think, and this is a little side thought, but if you think about it, um, science would call that, Genesis 1-1, the Big Bang. Most of us, most people, most Christians say, well, the Big Bang, that's anti-God. Do you know why, who, who labeled that event the Big Bang? Scientists did. And it was a term of derision. When, when they first, back in the 1930s, first proposed that, there was an, uh, that the, the universe had a beginning, the scientists, the, the, the materialists who did not believe in God threw a fit because they knew if the universe has a beginning, it puts huge problems for us. And so they tried to kill that theory. The fact that, that science has proved pretty much without a doubt that the, the universe did begin. It had a beginning. There was a time when the universe didn't exist. Revolutionized science. In fact, it points very clearly how did it come into being. Now you can, scientists will argue nine ways to Sunday, and that argument all comes down to what's your prejudice coming in. If you're a materialist, you don't believe in the spiritual world, God doesn't exist, and nothing's split into two parts. If, you're, if you're, you believe in God, and you believe in a supernatural, then God created. Your explanation comes from where your heart is. If you love light, you'll find yourself in the light. If you love darkness, your explanation's going to be darkness. But notice, he says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. But then we get to verse 2. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. I want us to, to notice a couple of different things here. First, when it says it was out without form and void, the, the Hebrew term there is tohu vabohu. The va in there is a conjunction. It puts those two together. It says there are two 
traits that the universe in verse 2 exhibited. Without form and void. Tohu and bohu. Tohu, well, bohu means empty, which is obvious. You all go all the way through Genesis 1, it tells you what God filled the universe with, and specifically what he filled the earth with. God wasn't finished creating with the creation of the universe. He created all the stuff, and then we're going to see later on, he divided between, as far as the description of Genesis, he divided between what I'm going to do on the earth and what, what the heavens are. And then he describes how he continued creation in the earth to fill that emptiness up. But the, what's translated there is with, that it's without form. The Hebrew word tohu means it's chaotic. It has no order. Which, I could explain why that might be possible, but if you go to Isaiah chapter 45, we're going to read verse 18, it explains that word tohu and explains this situation. And, and from that explanation, we can make some determinations. First of all, I want you to understand Isaiah 45 is talking about, uh, it's a chapter that's talking to Cyrus the Great. Cyrus the Great was one of the, um, he conquered Babylon, he was a Persian, and then eventually he got conquered, and, and, but Cyrus was the one that first, was the very first king to come to the Jews and say, look, you've been in captivity, I'm going to help you go back, rebuild the city, rebuild the temple, I'm going to provide money and materials, you all go, you, have, you know, you have my permission, you have my blessing, and I'm going to finance it for you. Isaiah 45, but you keep in mind, throughout Isaiah, Isaiah is not a very pleasant book. Isaiah is a book of judgment. You guys have sinned, and we got problems because of that. But notice this in Isaiah 45, 18. For thus says the Lord, who created the heavens, who is God, who formed the earth and made it, who has established it, who did not create it in vain, who formed it to be inhabited, I am the Lord and there is no other. I'm going to go pick that apart a little bit. Notice the very second stanza there. Thus says the Lord, who created the heavens. That's Genesis 1.1. Who formed the earth? That's later on in Genesis. He took the stuff and started forming it, just like a, a, um, 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 a sculptor will take a, take a piece of clay and he just throws it down on his wheel. Then he starts forming it. He has to fashion it. You got the stuff, but you got to make something out of the stuff. God did the same thing. He established it, meaning he, he, he said, we're going to fill this thing up. But notice who did not create it in vain, that is the Hebrew word that's translated vain, is the Hebrew word tohu. Remember Genesis 2-2, or 1-2, said the earth was tohu vabohu, and Isaiah just told us God didn't create it tohu. So where'd the tohu come in in Genesis 1-2? Well, we don't know, and there's a rampant ex or um, speculation about what happened and basically the, the the theory that most people or a lot of people accept on this is that somewhere between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2 there was some kind of event that brought chaos to the creation that God created before he got to the point where he fashioned the earth and filled the earth 
Something caused Tohu. My opinion, it was Satan's fall. When Satan fell, he brought chaos to God's creation. And there's, I don't have time to go look at that. It's, it's an interesting study. But again, that's not a heaven or hell issue. You can agree with that one or not agree. But here's the pattern that I'm starting to see. God created the universe. Satan came in and brought chaos. God comes in and creates the earth and forms it and brings life. Remember, Isaiah 45, 18 says, He formed it, earth, to be inhabited. He brought the earth in, made the Garden of Eden, made a garden, put man, put Adam and Eve in it, and said, I want you to till it, and I want you to guard it. So here's the pattern. God created an orderly universe. The devil messed it up royally. He brought chaos in. God came in and reformed it, put it back in order, and put mankind in there. And he intended for mankind to live in a direct relationship with him and keep the order. That's why he told Adam and Eve, first command, go replenish the earth. Have, go have babies. Have kids. Fill this place up. And in the doing, I want you to till it. I've got everything planted. You keep it neat and you guard it. Where did they fail? They didn't guard it. Now, if you think back to, to Isaiah 45, Cyrus is coming in and uh, uh, empowering the, the Ezra and some of the other Jews, Nehemiah, to go back to Jerusalem. <clears throat> God in the course of time after the fall, he spoke to Abraham, said, I'm calling a nation out of you. Abraham said, okay, and then Abraham was followed by Isaac and then by Jacob. Jacob, through Joseph, ended up in, in um, Egypt, and they stayed in, ended up in slavery for over 400 years because God was still trying to deal with the Canaanites and get them saved, and he dealt with them and dealt with them until... They used up all of the grace and the mercy he had, and he said, all right, my kids are coming out. You guys are just going to have to die. Sorry. I've dealt with you for 400 years. I've allowed my children to stay in captivity. Now I'm done. Judgment's coming. Israel came in. They founded the kingdom. Um, you had the period of the judges, and then you had, had um, um, Saul come in as a king, and then David came in as a king, and Solomon, who was the wisest man in the world, probably the wisest man that ever lived, came in and ruled as king. And what did he do? The wisest man to ever live. He married a thousand wives. And every one of those wives, it wasn't because he was a, 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 a randy guy. Those were treaties he made with surrounding city-states. And every one of them represented a treaty to keep the peace. But every one of them brought their gods with them. And they perverted him to the point where at the end of his life he wrote Ecclesiastes where he just threw up his hands and he said, it's all emptiness, it's all vanity. There's, you, you're born, you live a hard life and you die and there's nothing left. This is the wisest man in the world. And yet getting off of God's order brought him to despair. And then when he died, the kingdom split into the ten northern tribes they sin, so they, 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 um, their sin culminated with Ahab and Jezebel, who their perversions 
they may even be actually worse than where we are in the world today. Maybe not completely, but close. God judged them, brought the Assyrians in. They're scattered to the four winds. Nobody knows where those ten tribes are. God will restore them once we're out of here, and he sends out the 144,000 angels. Those ten tribes will go. He'll commission them to spread the gospel. But today we don't know who they are. <clears throat> but he left the two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, around Jerusalem. But even they sinned to the point that they had to go off into captivity. That's when he writes Isaiah 45, when they're in captivity. But see if the pattern again. God brought in Adam and Eve. They fell. Order fell apart. Disorder came in. God called Abraham brought order to a small tribe and promoted them. They did okay for a while, but the farther they went, the worse they got. Disorder, sin, took its toll, and God finally had to judge them, sent them over into judgment, but he brought them out. Cyrus is bringing order back to the world, to the tribe. Why? Because God had to have the temple. He had to have a people there so they could do the temple worship, so they could usher in the Messiah. It was all pointing to get Jesus into the world. Because that is the ultimate order, is to bring Jesus in, because Jesus is going to attack it at its root. He's going to come in and live the perfect life, die the perfect death, and totally raise, R-A-Z-E, raise hell and Satan. He's going to destroy them. He's going to take all the authority. He's going to defeat every one of them. From the smallest imp to Satan himself, he conquers them all. And he comes out of the grave, and he turns to us, to the church, and he says, now, I've hidden this for all eternity. Now I'm going to put my spirit into people and let you all live in the world and bring order to the world. And the church has woven in and out of order, disorder, order, disorder, order, disorder the whole time. But we're coming up to this last fruitful time. You realize there's more people alive on the earth today than have existed from uh, sometime in the 70s. From Well, let's just use 1970. 1970 to Adam and Eve back. More people alive on the earth today than ever lived. Of course we can get a bigger crop. we got more people. And we're, God's going to reap a big crop. But notice, back in Genesis, we've got this pattern that God's forming the earth. And remember, don't forget, this all comes from 2 Corinthians 4.13. I believed, therefore I spoke. Why am I speaking something? Because God's called me to bring order. First to my life. And then... To people around me. And in Genesis 1-3, and this is the point, because remember, 2 Corinthians 4-6, he goes back and makes the reference, God commanded light. He references the whole process in 2 Corinthians 4 with God's creation event in bringing light. But notice verse 3. He's already created the universe in verse 1. In verse 2, there's chaos and emptiness, and darkness was on the face of the deep, but the Spirit of God was hovering. That's brooding. He was how, how a hen broods over eggs. He's hatching something out here. And in verse 3, it describes what he does. Then God said, God believed, therefore he spoke. 
God said, let there be light. And there was light. I've heard for years, that's a creation event retold. No, it's not. There was darkness on the face of the deep, and God said, out of this darkness, the chaos that Satan has brought in, I'm calling forth my light. And God spoke light. He spoke order into the darkness that existed there. He didn't look at it and say, Jesus, what are we going to do? It's dark. It's chaotic. I guess we we need to just wipe this out and start over with a new universe. No, he said, darkness exists, but it's not bigger than me. And so he spoke, and light came out of the darkness. This making sense? I know I'm 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 got you out there. I'm hanging you off a cliff, but think with me. He spoke, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. He's making a division. He's starting to give people choices. Remember, in the garden, God said, You can eat from all of the trees, just not this one. Don't eat from the tree of good and evil. Why did he say that? Because they had to have a choice. With free will and no choices, you're just an automaton. You're just a robot. Let me put it this way. If God said, you shall not eat roast beef, and I fill a table with roast beef, are you tempted? Well, if you like roast beef, yeah. What if you had throat cancer, though, and you can't eat anything? They had to remove your esophagus, and it's shown or sewn shut at right at the back of your mouth. You have to be fed through a tube directly in your stomach. You cannot eat anything. Is that roast beef now a temptation? Not really, because you can't do the act. If you can't do the act, it's not a temptation. If you're not capable of sinning, if you're not capable of making a choice, you can't sin. So God had to give Adam and Eve a choice and say, choose me. You see the same thing in Deuteronomy, or not Deuteronomy. Well, maybe, yes, it is. In the end of Deuteronomy with, with uh, Joshua, God says, I have placed before you today death and life. Choose life. Choose life. There's always a choice, and that's what God is doing. He's dividing the light and the darkness here. And then in, in Genesis 2-7, we see this. Remember, God brought the light into the darkness by speaking the light in there. In Genesis 2-7, this is where God forms man. In the later creation, he created plants, animals, a whole bunch of stuff. And then at the, the, the ultimate, the pinnacle of his creation, he made Adam. He formed him out of the dust. He stood him up and he breathed on him breathed life into Adam. It was God speaking into Adam, his breath. Breath represents the life of God. It's how God speaks. You cannot speak. In fact, I'll challenge you. Say anything you want to with me. Just don't do it or do it without breathing. You cannot do it. You cannot breathe or you cannot speak without breathing life or breathing breath out. That's exactly the metaphor that they're giving us right here. In fact, Tim, Paul said it 
when he wrote the second letter to Timothy. Fairly familiar scripture, 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. Do you know what that Greek word there is for inspiration? Theonuma. God breathed. Our scriptures, God breathed them in. We have the written word, but Jesus is the living, breathing word. You have, you have earth, sinful earth. You have heaven in its perfection, and Jesus bridged the gap. He was the word that took on flesh. Now, he didn't take on sinful flesh. Again, why I said he had to, to be a, a, um, he had to be born of a virgin. Otherwise, he would have inherited the sin nature from Adam. But with God as being his father, he didn't inherit. He inherited what he inherited from his father, which was perfection. He had, he had a body just like the first Adam. That's why the Bible describes him in more than one place as the second Adam. But notice, go back to Paul here in 2 Timothy. All Scripture is God-breathed. And it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God, there again, the word there for man, it's anthropos. It's talking about humans. It's not talking about a male. It's talking about men and women both. That, that people, the people of God, may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. I want to look here at what this scripture is called to do. Because remember, we started this with God bringing the light and Paul saying, I believed, I saw illumination on the word and I believed it and I was compelled to speak it. When we look at 2 Timothy, if this scripture is God breathed, what does it do when I breathe it back out of me? When I take God's word and I declare it, I am standing in God's place. Remember, in, in, in Ephesians uh, chapter 1, verse 20, it says that you are seated with Him in heavenly places. So you're already, He has lifted you up and put you in His place of authority. He said, I've given you my name. I've given you my spirit. I've put you in a unique position. So I'm telling you, say what I say. I've used this example before. When, when Ryan or, or Tiffany, usually it was Ryan, he would go down, way down the street to a playground. It was his playground, he thought. It was a neighborhood playground. And when it was time to go get him, I'm not walking down there. I got a second rug rat. Go tell your brother it's time to come home. Well, being a new dad, the first few times I told her that, I just said, go get your brother and tell him to come home. So she'd go down there, Ryan, it's time to come home. You need to come home. And he'd say, you're not the boss of me. And she'd come home, she'd say, Daddy, he's not listening. Well, what'd you tell him? I told him to come home. Well, you go back down there and you tell him, Dad said, come home. He always responded when she brought my authority on the scene. Because when she spoke, she's four years old, five years old. But when she speaks, it's me speaking through her. That's what Paul is talking about when he says, I believe, therefore I spoke. What did I believe? According to what was written. When I speak out God's word, I'm not just, oh, I am going to force God to do this. You're not going to force God to do anything. Nobody is that stupid. 
I mean, if you think about it, who is, if this is the God of the universe, what are you going to push him and make him do? How are you going to twist his arm? You cannot do it, and you'd have to be, be absolutely bonkers to think you could. But when he says, you're my child, this is my will for you, and you speak and say, God says this about me, and God says this about my circumstances, then things have to change. Because it's not you talking, it's him talking. It, but it has to come out of your voice. It's God-breathed. It's your breath, but it's God talking. But if you don't lend your breath to those words, they're no account. They don't apply to you the same way if you don't partake of the meal, you get no benefit. If you don't breathe the words out of your mouth that he says, you get no benefit. It can be God's will. But you have to breathe it. You have to say it. Look at this really quick. When it says that all Scripture is, is, is profitable, it's inspired, it's God-breathed, it's profitable for doctrine. That literally means the, the, the root of that is to be a rabbi or be a master teacher. It will tell you how to stand in Jesus' place as a rabbi, as one who can speak with authority. Think about all the times you read in the gospel that, that people were amazed at Jesus. He spoke as one who has authority. No rabbi ever spoke as they had authority. They would quote other rabbis. And because the rabbi was dead or from a distant place, he had authority. You've seen this. If you have worked out in, in industry at all, you know, the joke in most industries is how do you define an expert? An expert is somebody in your field that lives at least 100 miles from you. And that is a, there is a lot of truth. If you know someone... You usually just, you kind of, well, that's just Joe. What people in Nazareth said to Jesus, well, that's just Jesus. We know his mama. We knew his daddy. We know his brothers and sisters. How can he stand up and say this? But he stood up with authority because he knew it wasn't his word he was preaching. It was the Father's word he was preaching. Because remember, it says that he said nothing that he didn't hear the Holy Spirit say. He did nothing that he did not see the Holy Spirit do. He took all of his cues from the Holy Spirit and obeyed the Father. He did nothing in this earth as the second person of the Godhead. He did it as a perfect man in total obedience to his heavenly Father. He only spoke what God gave him to speak. And he did it with authority. That's what he's called us to do. And he will make us a, a, a master teacher if we'll do it. It's for reproof. Reproof, literally, we think of that as, man, I'm going to reprove you when I get home. When my dad said something to that accord, it was like, I don't want to go home. <clears throat> Can we just stay here wherever we are? It may be hot, it may be uncomfortable. I don't want to go home because when I get home, I'm going to get a spanking. I'm going to get reproved. It's not what this word means. It means to bring something to light so you can see its flaws. You take something and shine a great light. Every little crack, every little flaw shows up. God, the, the word will show you where your flaws are. But the good news is it doesn't just show you your flaws. It'll repair your flaws. It will fix them. Grace doesn't just set, set a, 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 a standard for you to meet. It gives you the ability to meet the standard. That's what the Word will do when you... But it, remember, you have to speak it for correction. That literally means to take something that's crooked and make it straight. 
If you've ever had a broken bone, the worst, worst thing you can think of is when you go to the doctor, you got, he's going to have to get that thing set. He's got to get that bone at least partly straight. Now, they don't worry about it being perfected. Because remember, a crooked walking stick works just as well as a straight walking stick. But they do have to get it fairly close. And if it's sat a while, it's going to be painful. Sometimes God's Word will correct you, and He'll start straightening you out. If you ever go to a chiropractor, you know when you get done, it's going to feel better. But the thought of Him, when He would grab my neck, and I knew that twist was coming, and I knew on the inside of me it was going to sound like a, a, a machine gun going off when that, those neck bones started popping, I always envisioned me laying there with my torso laying on the thing and him holding my head that he's detached. I mean, it's, it's a little worrisome. But I, I did it because I knew it was going to feel better. He's going to straighten it out. That's what the Word will do for you. For instruction, this one is how you, you guide someone. Tutors, when they had children, they would have a long stick. Now, they didn't whack them with the stick. But if the, two, if the kids started to wander off from the path, they'd tap them, get them back in. Same thing a shepherd did with a shepherd's crook. If the sheep started wandering off, they'd take that crook and they'd reach out and they'd pull that sheep back close. They wouldn't let them get off. And then the last one, <clears throat> it will instruct you in righteousness. That is, is right standing with God. It puts you in a position where you and God are tight. Now, let me close with this, because I've, I've gone on a lot longer than I thought I would. 2 Peter 1.1. 1, 1. This is Simon Peter. It's how he introduces this second letter. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. We have the same faith that Peter had. We have the same faith that Paul had. We may look up to them and think of them as the pillars of the faith, but we stand in the exact same position they did. In fact, we stand in a better position because they were having to write the Scriptures, and we have them already written. We can go reference them. We can go study them. Peter had to figure it out as he went along. So did Paul. In fact, Paul was writing most of them. <clears throat> Don't know if he was aware that he was writing Scripture. I'll have to ask him when we get to heaven. But keep in mind, we said it a minute ago, Ephesians 1.20, we have been raised and seated with Christ. Our position is secure with Him. But this is my last scripture, and I've said this before, and I'm hoping that, that it makes a little more sense now. Hebrews 11, 1 through 3. This is, is Paul, I believe it's Paul, talking about how faith works. He says, faith is the substance of things hoped for. It's, you have a vision out here. God's Word says this is possible for you. That's your hope. It gives you the evidence of things that you don't see yet. When God saw the darkness on the face of the earth, face of the waters, He spoke light, but He saw no light. What was His evidence? When I speak, it'll happen. I don't have the confidence in my words that God has in His words. Let's just be real. I'm not quite to His stature yet. I am seated with Him. But I haven't gotten to where I have full confidence because I haven't got a complete and full revelation of the Word yet. But the evidence that I speak things that aren't in existence yet, 
that the evidence that they will come into existence is the word. Notice verse 2, though. For by it the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were not made of, thing, or are, were not made of things which are visible. That is a horrible translation because when you see worlds, you're thinking of planets, solar systems. That's the Greek word aeon, which is translated almost universally ages. And the question is, what ages were framed? The ages of the elders that he's going to talk about in the rest of chapter 11. These guys had one word from God. God came to Gideon, gave him a word. God came to Abraham, he gave him a word. And they took that word and they spoke that word. With Abraham, he made it easy for Abraham. He said, look, I'm changing your name. Your name's not Abram anymore, it's Abraham. And Abraham, who was childless, had to greet everyone, said, how, how are you, Jerry? My name is Father of Nations. Father of Nations? You ain't got any kids. Nope, my name is Father of Nations. Do you think that pulled Abraham back a little the first time he had to do that? Uh, guys, I know you're my servants, I know you're... My name's changed. Call me Abraham now. Call me father of nations. And you know they, they started, but when they, they wouldn't have done it to his face. When they got behind his back, they snickered a little. Father of nations. He ain't even got any kids. He's 90 years old. And it, or he's 100 and his wife's 90. And he thinks he's the father of nations. Man, his, his teacup's a little off center. But God said, Abraham... You're the father of nations. And Abraham believed, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. But then he had to follow it through and obey God and call himself father of nations. And he framed his age. He, Isaac came into existence because Abraham kept repeating what God said to him. He got a revelation God knows more than I do. I'm going to believe God, and I'm going to declare what God said. And it came about. For us, we need to follow 2 Corinthians 4.13. I have faith. I got some illumination on the Word here. This is who God says I am. I'm going to have to declare it first to myself. Remember, there, there is a confession of faith, and there is a confession unto faith. The first time I get a little light on it, I may not have as much light as I'm going to get, but if I will start down that path, give God my voice, and start the same way that God spoke light in the darkness, if I will say, okay, God, you said that I've, if I will believe you and speak this, Mark 11, 23 and 24, if you will, if you believe, or if you will speak to your mountain, he didn't say, pray that I move your mountain. You speak to your mountain. You take a revelation that I give you from the Word. Let me, I can't emphasize that enough. It's from the Word. And start speaking that over your life and declaring, God, you said it, I'm going to believe it, and I'm going to speak it. People will think you're foolish. Now, there's also the other side of this. You don't necessarily cast your pearls before swine. You don't go out in the general public and start making vast declarations that you had a little bit of light on. You may start in your prayer closet. 
You may start to yourself, well, I just manifested this sin for the 1,740th time today. But I'm going to declare, because God says I, I am not a sinner, I'm going to declare that I do not do that sin. How can you say that? You just did it. God says I'm not a sinner. And sinners will bear fruit of sin. But I'm a saint, so I'm going to bear fruit of righteousness. And I'm going to declare what I want to see, not what's exhibiting itself. And eventually that fruit will start appearing. Now keep in mind, this is not just works. It's not just, well, if I repeat it a thousand times, it'll start manifesting. No, you have to believe it first. But then you just have to make a choice to start agreeing with God and start acting like God. Act like God in the sense that, that you have a small, you have your life to rule, and I'm going to rule myself. And what you will find is when you do that, your body will start to obey you. You, your body is, is bound with sin forevermore. That's why it has to die. If Jesus comes back before we die, he will change this corruptible into incorruptible. In a sense, your body dies then, and you get a brand new one. But I have to, I, even though I can't get the corruption out of it, I can train it. I can train my flesh to obey me. That's part of what we're talking about. You train it by believing and speaking according to the Word. Just like God created the universe, the devil messed it up, and God came back in and reformed it and spoke light into darkness. If I got darkness in me, I just got to start speaking God's Word and see that light appear in that darkness. Thank you so much for joining us today. If this message has blessed you, we invite you to visit us in person at the corner of Highway 31 South and Southport Road, Indianapolis, Indiana, or visit us online at FCCIndianapolis.com.